friends, welcome back to Digital Feed. My name is, of course, Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here, we try to make keeping up with the literature easy, trying to get the latest research spoon-fed to you through your earbuds. Now then, quick look ahead at what we're going to be covering this week. First of all, we have the part one of some essentials on leadership. Next, a new Valsalva, this time in reverse. After that, pit viper snake bites and what to do about them. Then, what to do with cardiac transplant patients in the ER, and finally, the salsa RCT, a bolus or trickle of hypertonic saline for hyponatremia. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the fabulous Sam Parnell, Kevin Stopfer, Carmen Wolf, Vivian Lay, and Clay Smith. Now then, without further ado, I bring to you the first article, which was titled Leadership Essentials for Chest Medicine Professionals, Models, Attributes, and Styles, out of the journal Chest. We are starting a few-part series about leadership. Here we're going to be covering a few words today about commitments, characteristics, and competencies that are found in a good leader. Leadership, I don't need to tell you, is one of the very important pillars of medicine. Actually, here in Canada, we have a set of sort of formalized roles that are beat into every medical student's head as to what comprises the ideal doctor. And being one of them, leadership is, of course, important to healthcare. We assume that the materials that make up a good doctor also make up a good leader, but that's just not really the case. Being a leader is its own practice skill, and it deserves some thought. And never before than in the past year has leadership as a healthcare professional been so important. Just being a doctor actually lends a lot of credence to what you say, think, and do. We need to wield that power responsibly, and to do that, the authors of this paper came up with five commitments based on the seven virtues of being a leader. Let's start off with the seven virtues that make a leader what they are. Leaders should have these attributes to the best of their ability, to be someone who others ought to follow. Now then, they are trust, built by keeping promises and speaking the truth. Compassion, getting to know your team and understanding how they feel. Courage, a good leader takes risks and takes responsibility. Justice, treating your team fairly. Without just behavior, you can't have number one, trust, the first virtue. Then wisdom, taking time to make careful, thoughtful decisions and listening to advice. After that, temperance, knowing when to act and when not to. And lastly, hope, modeling for a better future. Now then, with those virtues in mind, a leader should make the following commitments. Each of them is going to be starting with an A, just, you know, make it all more catchy. First off, explore. There's always room to grow and expand, seeking the new and the innovative. Then envision. Be realistic, but optimistic. After that, enable. Often the best thing about being a leader is actually giving away your powers through delegation and helping others to lead. Then example. Walk the walk, don't just talk the talk. And the last commitment will be to encourage. Recognize individuals and how they contribute and how they excel. Bring that out in others and try to foster it. Those commitments are amazing for all leaders, but the authors also identified a few competencies that leaders should try to develop over time. And these are things that are a little bit more familiar to you and I um, because they're part of medical training and they're really talked about, but they also apply more broadly. And we'll try to point that out a little bit. So we already had five virtues and we had seven attributes. So let's have six competencies. (laughs) So first off, we had a technical knowledge and skills in all things, not just medicine. 
So that includes operations, that includes finances, that includes accounting, HR, policy, you really need it all. Then there's knowledge of healthcare. And this goes past knowing a differential diagnoses and the treatments for things. This goes into reimbursement strategies, legislation, management. After that, we also have problem solving. That's not just figuring out what your patient has. It's also resolving organizational challenges and managing projects. Then communication, not just talking to your patients, but also leading groups, negotiations, and conflict resolution. Then a commitment to lifelong learning. You guys are already here, so you know what's up. But try to keep up with our ever-evolving world. And then finally, the last one is emotional intelligence. So in a spoonful, it's a lot. It won't always be easy, and being a leader doesn't always mean you'll feel like a leader. Learning to lead most of the time is going to just make you feel dumb. But we constantly have to face new challenges and embrace that and just push forward to be the best leaders that we can be. All right, let's move on to the second article, something a little bit more traditional, and this article is titled The Reverse Vagal Maneuver, a new tool for treatment of supraventricular tachycardia out of the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. Now then, supraventricular tachycardia, which I'm just going to call SVT, is a common enough presentation to acute care. And the patients that get this, uh, well, honestly, tend to get this more than once. Now, not long ago, we had the REVERT trial, which crowned the modified Valsalva maneuver to be king of all Valsalvas. And that's fair enough, because it actually doubled the efficacy of what we now call the standard Valsalva. And this modified technique had a number needed to treat of just three. So those are all the pros about this modified Valsalva. Now the cons, well, they still exist. It's a bit cumbersome to do because you usually need a second person to help with repositioning the patient. And on top of that, you need a manometer or a 10 millimeter syringe, which I know there's loads of 10 millimeter syringes around at the emergency department, but most patients aren't necessarily going to have these at home. So that leaves us open to suggestions for something that might be a little bit simpler, something that patients can do on their own and hopefully be just as effective. For that, we now turn to the reverse Valsalva. This study was a case series of 11 patients from France with SVT that were treated with the reverse Valsalva technique. In these patients, 91% of them, or 10 out of the just 11 that were treated, were successfully converted using a reverse Valsalva. That includes four patients that had previously failed the modified Valsalva. So how is this miracle performed, you ask? Really quite simply, actually. Just sit up straight, exhale without forcing, pinch your nose to occlude the nares, and then unsuccessfully attempt to inhale for 10 seconds. After that, just check the monitor and look for a sinus rhythm. And just like all the other Valsalvas, this relies on increasing vagal tone and decreasing sympathetic activity in order to restore a sinus rhythm. It's safe, it's easy, and it can be done anywhere, anytime. The only downside is that this was a tiny sample, so the evidence is really quite limited. Still, though, you could add it to your toolkit since it's quick and probably harmless. In a spoonful, it's nothing fancy, but the reverse Valsalva is another technique that can be used to terminate SVTs. Additional studies are definitely going to be needed, but for now, it's probably safe and it might be effective, so you could try it. Then we have the third article, which was titled, How Should Native Crotalid Envenomation Be Managed in the Emergency Department? Out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. Now then, I'm Canadian, as I've said many times before, and the only animals that live near me that could possibly kill me are big, and you wouldn't be tempted to get very close to them. 
That said, uh, I do have to answer a lot of board review study questions about snake bites sometimes, since most of the QBanks are made in the States, and they often cover this, so I'm happy to be reading an article about this. So we're talking about snakes, specifically crotalids, which is a subfamily of the larger family Viperidae. More colloquially, you could call these pit vipers, and this includes some of your favorite poisonous snakes, like rattlesnakes, copperheads, and even cottonmouths all of which can be found in a pretty large portion of the United States, and not surprisingly, people get bitten. So why not? Let's review. The authors found 177 studies in an attempt to answer eight clinical questions regarding crotalid envenomation. A bit of peer reviewing, and they were able to whittle that stack down to just 33, but there's still some high-quality studies in there. So here we go. Question one. How should patients with potential crotalid envenomation be assessed? Own those ABCs, just like any patient. You're going to expect to see some swelling, which of course should be monitored, and ideally take some pictures of it so you can keep better track or sign over the task of keeping track of this swelling. By way of labs, send off a CBC, you're going to be looking for some thrombocytopenia or some anemia. Get a BMP to check for potassium and renal function, get a PT and fibrinogen to follow any coagulopathies, and finally get a CK just in case of rhabdo. And now question number two, what are the initial steps in treatment? Pain control is necessary as with any patient that comes into the ED. Try to elevate the affected extremity and this will hopefully minimize some of the swelling, which again, monitor regularly. Don't use tourniquets, don't debride anything, don't cauterize anything, but do get poison control on the phone. Question three, when do you give antivenom? Now there are a few nice little criteria here, which are pretty clear. If swelling extends beyond one major joint, or if there's significant necrosis as per your clinical judgment, then any PT more than 15, a fibrinogen less than 150, or platelets less than 150. And finally, systemic toxicity, so things like hypotension, neurological symptoms, or airway swelling. These are all bad enough to get antivenom. Question 4. How to dose antivenom if you do give it? Crofab, which is the antivenom antibody which you're going to be using, is dosed by the vial. The first dose should be given as 4-6 to six vials, and then repeat as needed with 2-4 to four vials. That's going to be the same dose for kids as it will be for adults, since what you're treating is the amount of venom rather than the weight of the person. And as with any antibody product, you're going to have to watch out for anaphylaxis. Question number 5, what about copperheads? Eh, well, they're not special. Treat these like any other crotalid. Question number 6, where to admit? Most of these patients are probably going to go to a medicine bed. But in severe cases, like those cases that got the antivenom, they might need to be going to the ICU. And question number seven. Are antibiotics necessary? Short answer, no, unless you think there's an infection. Finally, the last question, question eight, when to consult surgery? Not for any blebs or blisters, those can definitely be left alone, but do consult if there's any suspicion for compartment syndrome. So in a spoonful, that's how you treat pit viper bites. But remember that prevention is key, so don't play with snakes. Article number four titled A Primer for Managing Cardiac Transplant Patients in the Emergency Department Setting under the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. So as medical sciences advance, so does the complexity of our dear, dear patients. If you're at a big center with a cardiac transplant center, then you're sure to see some really complex patients. Cardiac transplant patients have a lot of possibilities for complications, and when something does go wrong, you might be the first person to see them. So here's a review to cover some of the pearls and common complications associated with cardiac surgery. 
of important note about cardiac transplant physiology, which is going to come up several times, is that their heart rates are going to run tacky, about 80 to 110. And this is pretty normal for them because during surgery, most often they actually lose their vagus nerve stimulation. And so they don't have that sort of parasympathetic tone to their heart. And so they're going to run faster. When evaluating these patients, you want to rope in your colleagues and probably early. Notify the transplant team that they've arrived. When you get an ECG, that's still going to look like mostly everything that you'd normally look for for ACS, but there are some common and benign alterations that you can expect to see. Two P waves may be present if the surgeon used a bicaval approach. Right bundle branch block is actually seen in 70% of patients, and PVCs and PACs are also quite common, again, in 70% of patients. The rest of your workup is pretty usual, actually. Troponins and BNPs can be high for up to three months, but you'll be looking for a new elevation, and that's not new. Echocardiography is really nice. A functional assessment is always useful. Now then, let's see what complications we might actually expect to see. Dysrhythmias are going to be a concern. That's not a surprise. This is a heart transplant after all. If you're seeing a bradycardia, then the same reason that they tend to run fast is the same reason that atropine just isn't going to help. There's just no vagal innervation. If you're finding yourself with an AFib or a flutter, then favor beta blockers. These patients are likely to be on tacrolimus or cyclosporins, and the levels of those two drugs can be elevated by deltiazem's effects on metabolism. What if they have a new AVNRT? Looking to test out that new reverse vagal maneuver you just learned on a podcast? Ah, sorry, don't bother. Again, it won't work. There's no vagus after all. So use adenosine, but use a low dose and be very cautious. Now, if they have a sustained ventricular tachycardia, this can be a sign of rejection or vasculopathy. So call your consultants. Rejections are most common in the first two years, but peak at one month. Always consider it, but a biopsy is going to be needed to confirm. Non-sustained ventricular tachycardias and BVCs are pretty common and mostly benign. By way of infections, it's pretty similar to most transplant patients and can be broken down into sort of time zones. In the first month, you're going to be thinking about nosocomial infections, something at the surgical site, or infections that are brought over by the donor organ. After that, until six months, this is going to be the prime time for opportunistic infections due to the immunosuppression. After that, most infections are going to be pretty much your garden variety infections. And unfortunately, that garden variety now includes COVID, which looms over everything. And this is pretty bad because mortality rates of COVID in this population approach about 25%. Moving on, ACS never left your differential and should be way up there for whatever these patients present with. These patients can have cardiac allograph vasculopathy which for us just means that they can have accelerated coronary artery disease. All of this is bad because the rates of silent MIs in these patients can be quite high at 40% because, well, these just aren't very well innervated hearts. <sighs> in a spoonful, graft failure, rejection, and infection are most common in the first year after cardiac transplant, and these patients are at a high risk for various dysrhythmias as well as silent ACS. So after that, we have our last article, which was titled The Risk of Overcorrection in Rapid Intermittent Bolus Versus Slow Continuous Infusion Therapies for Hypertonic Saline for Patients with Symptomatic Hyponatremia, the SALSA Randomized Clinical Trial at a JAMA Internal Medicine. To correct symptomatic hyponatremia, typically an infusion of hypertonic saline is used. Hyponatremia needs to be corrected slowly, though, so we want to do it with certain goals in mind and not correct too quickly. 
If you're giving a constant infusion, then you need to be really cognizant of how long it's been running. Don't forget that it's been running. And then timing your tests can be tricky because while the test value that you get, if you didn't stop the pump, it's gonna be what that patient was at a little while ago, but now they've gotten more. So it's a little bit complicated. With all this said, why not just try some intermittent boluses of hypertonic saline? Because honestly, that's how we correct pretty much every other electrolyte abnormality anyways. Maybe it's safer, maybe it's easier. This was a prospective randomized control trial out of three hospitals in South Korea, which included 178 patients either in the emergency department or admitted. All of these patients had moderate to severe symptomatic hyponatremia with blood levels of sodium less than 125 millimoles per liter. The patients were randomized to either receive protocols of slow continuous infusions of hypertonic saline or rapid intermittent bolus therapy. Both groups had their sodiums checked every 6 hours, and 5% dextrose or desmopressin was used to re-lower sodium if they were overcorrected. The incidence of overcorrected was not significantly different between the two groups. It was occurring in 17% of the bolus group and 24% of the continuous infusion group. But the bolus group had lower rates of needing to re-lower the sodium, and a higher proportion actually achieved the target correction rate within one hour. Thankfully, there were no cases of osmotic demyelination in either group. So if you find boluses easier for you, it might actually be a good pick. So in a spoonful, intermittent boluses of hypertonic saline, at least in the treatment of moderate to severe symptomatic hypotremia, actually has similar rates of overcorrection when you compare it to continuous infusion approaches. And so it might be safer and maybe a little bit easier for you to do. All right, that wraps us up. Let's do a quick review of everything that we talked about this week. First off, we had part one of a short series on leadership. We covered five commitments leaders should make, seven virtues to strive for, and six competencies to obtain. Arthur Clay did it much better justice than I could have here. And he really knows what he's talking about because he's the leader of this little boat that we call Journal Feed. So if you're interested in giving it a better read, then you can go to the Journal Feed blog and, you know, have a look. Next from the second article, sit up straight, exhale without forcing, pinch your nose to occlude the nares, and then unsuccessfully attempt to inhale for 10 seconds. That is the reverse Valsalva maneuver, and it works quite well based on this very limited evidence. Third, crotalid envenomation. Send off your labs, keep an eye on that swelling, and call toxicology. Fourth, in cardiac transplant patients, be on the lookout for rejection, infection, and failure, especially in the first year. ACS should also be very carefully ruled out because it may be silent. Rising troponins are still a good way to find this, though. Fifth, to boost that sodium back up in hyponatremia, you can consider intermittent bolusing instead of continuous infusions. It seems to be about as effective and possibly safer, maybe even easier. Now then, you've earned them, we offer them CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education, and they could be yours. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org, where in the very same place you can find links to all the articles that we've summarized, and if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding, and so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.